donkey detail. Surely it wasn't exactly what they planned their ministry would consist of. We don't know, of course, but what if it was James and John that Jesus sent to secure the colt that he would ride on that day? You know, James and John, the ones who not that long before had proposed that they sit at Jesus' right and left hand in glory. And here they are in the glorious moment that Jesus is to enter Jerusalem, dispatched to muck a stable, looking suspiciously like horse thieves, trying to wrestle an untamed and no doubt bulky animal toward the olive groves. Tom Long says it's one of the many realistic details that Mark includes in his gospel, though surely for the disciples it had to fall under the heading not what I had planned. It's a common enough feeling, surely we've all felt it at one time or another during mundane or monotonous times. A friend who is a chef talks about the shock it is for new chef wannabes that many days the whole afternoon is spent chopping. Parents of newborns in the midst of seemingly endless cycles of feeding, changing, soothing, are often left wondering when it is that the cooing, gurgling baby kicks in, much less that overwhelming joy of parenting that people have told them about. The same thing can be said, of course, for a call to ministry, whether or not we have high expectations of what such a call will do for us, we are typically surprised to find that living it out can involve so many mundane details. Proofing a bulletin, sweeping up a room, making sure everyone has a map to get to the retreat center and that they have the cell phone of everyone else in case they get lost. At our staff meeting yesterday, we took a moment to talk about all of the Holy Week details we needed to have in place next week. And part of our conversation included talk about childcare, if we had enough ribbons for the children to twirl as part of the processional on Easter Sunday, if we knew where the sneffer was for the tenebrae candles for Good Friday, were the palms ordered for Sunday, and when would they be delivered? It can be a bit surprising to our newer staff members all of these kinds of details that we talk about. And yet, as Mark in particular points out throughout his gospel, when it comes to preparing the way of the Lord, it's often about performing humble and routine tasks. Mark, despite being the briefest of the gospels, takes time to tell us that the disciples get a boat ready for Jesus, find out how much food is on hand for the multitude, secure the room and prepare the table for the last supper, and of course, chase down a donkey that the Lord needs to enter Jerusalem. Maybe, though, in a way, it's all part of the theme of the unexpectedness of the gospel message, especially as it pertains to this story. Here we are, after all, poised for the entrance of the new king into Jerusalem, and all you might expect doesn't come to pass. In fact, in Mark, it's a little anticlimactic. Where is the horse? writes David Wells, the steed that bears the triumphant general, the untamable champion. And its place is a young colt, hardly the symbol of leadership. Jesus seems to have no understanding of rank. 
After all the fuss about procuring and sequestering the right animal, just the kind of action worthy of a king, he gets the wrong animal. He chooses an agricultural tool, not a weapon of war, a tractor instead of a tank. Of course, it's only another example of the whole way that Jesus turns people's expectations upside down. Though Mark has a slightly different picture here than the others. In the other Gospels, you see, there does seem to be a big crowd of people. In Mark's, it's a relatively modest scene. Here it seems to be mostly those who have been traveling with Jesus who begin to sing and shout. And the next move is particular to Mark as well. In the other synoptic Gospels, just after entering Jerusalem, Jesus goes to the temple and cleanses it, turning over tables, showing from the beginning what his reign will be about. In Mark that day, he goes to the temple, looks around, and goes on to the hotel. Really, it's not what I would have planned after arriving in Jerusalem, showing again how surprising Mark can be. And yet it's part of why Mark's version of this story is a particularly good one to start off Holy Week with this coming Sunday. Because if we're honest, we should expect, we should say we don't expect a lot of surprises along the way. After years of hearing the story of how this week plays out, from the entry into Jerusalem, into the Last Supper, to the crucifixion and the resurrection, it's tempting to think we we simply know it. Worse, we let in as part of that, thinking we know the meaning of these events as well, or at least the meaning we think we're supposed to know and accept about what it all means. But I wonder if in this text there aren't a few surprises left that hint to a need for us to open up a bit about the meaning it all holds. Take in particular the cry of the crowd on that first day of the week. Hosanna, they say, walking alongside Jesus. Hosanna. It's a peculiar word. One that's a little difficult to define. Scholars' best guess is that Hosanna is a contraction of two Hebrew terms, one meaning to save or deliver, the other meaning to beseech or pray. So you might translate the shouts of the crowd as, we beseech you to deliver us. They cheered, they tossed branches from the nearby trees to the ground, and they called out, Hosanna. They looked upon this prophet rumored to be the Messiah, and they cried out to him, save us, save us. It's the kind of detail I can easily overlook each year, year busily waving my palm around the sanctuary without wondering how what I'm saying really connects to who I am in the story. Scott Black Johnston, a Presbyterian pastor, tells of a time when he met with the seventh graders of his church and agreed to address the questions that they had written to him on three-by-five cards. This can be very dangerous, by the way, but if you feel like you can risk it, go ahead. And, And he did. Four of the 12 cards asked, Is Jesus the only way to salvation? 
Being an annoying pastor, he told them that before he would answer that question, they had to answer one for him. Since salvation implies that you are being saved from something, what do you think Jesus is saving you from? The first answer that came back was hell. Jesus saves people from hell. Suspicious that that might be the answer they simply thought he wanted them to give, like when your doctor asks you, have you been exercising? He decided to ask it in a different way. Let me put it this way, he said to them, if God was really on the ball, what would God save you from? Suddenly, the conversation got interesting. One of the youth raised her hand and said, death. Another young man offered that God could really help him out by saving him from an upcoming math test. Then one of the seventh graders said, pressure. And another said, my parents' expectations. And another shy individual, almost in a whisper, said, fear. I I want God to save me from my fears. All of these answers struck me as more sincere than hell, Johnston says. Although I think you could argue that their comments gave a pretty clear picture of what hell looks like to a seventh grader. What if we look to the beginning of Holy Week when we'll wave our palms and boldly cry out, Hosanna? What if we really thought about what we want God to save us from? Maybe if we did, we'd say things like, save me from anger. Save me from depression. Save me from debt. Save me from the strife in my family. Save me from pretending I'm someone I'm not. Save me from failure. Save me from boredom. Save me from emptiness. Save me from the endless cycle of violence. Save me from humiliation. Save me from staring at the ceiling at 3 a.m. and wondering why I exist. Save me from bitterness. Save me from arrogance. Save me from loneliness. Save me, God. Save me from my fears. What if... As we marked this upcoming celebration, as we move through Palm Sunday this Sunday and move into a week we think we know, what if we allow the depth of what we need saving from to start the week with us? What if we allowed vulnerability to rise to the surface so that we too can heartily say, Save us. Though naming it is only part of the journey. It's probably safe to say the people traveling with Jesus were much less concerned themselves with hell than with the occupying Roman army. 
Something I think speaks to the complicated nature of what it means even to ask, what does God save us from? But that's a holy week question too. And of course, what those in Jerusalem were surprised by was that Jesus did not save them in the way that they had hoped with an overthrow of those in power. I bring all of this up because I imagine the mystery of this coming Holy Week is where we're to seek out the answers to these questions. Not only of what are we saved from, but also how. And what it means to follow a Messiah whose saving does not mean we'll never suffer. What does it look like to be saved anyway? I'll tell you, I think it has something to do with God's presence with us in the messiest, most unplanned for places of our lives. And that it has something to do with those places never being the final word for us. And though it may seem strange to start a week that holds such heavy questions with palms and celebration... I think if we really move through Holy Week, that Palm Sunday is just about right as a place to begin, whether, like the crowd, we fully understand it all. It's a day to celebrate this one who has finally arrived in our town, a day to scurry around with those also on the journey and be busy with preparations for what it will mean to host him, even when that means accepting that a donkey is his choice of a ride. Because it's a day when we also get to say, save us. Save us from ourselves and from all that is upon us in life and from everything that threatens to undo us. Save us so we understand that the worst thing is never the last thing. Save us and let us walk with you this coming week to see what that means.